This is a No Good People production. Hey, good people. We're back with another episode of the No Good People podcast, celebrating good people doing good things. My guest today is Dr. Nate Regeer, CEO and founding owner of Next Element Consulting, a global leadership consulting and training firm helping build cultures of compassionate accountability. Dr. Regeer is a former practicing psychologist and expert in social emotional intelligence, interpersonal communication, conflict skills, and leadership. Recognized as a top 100 keynote speaker, He's a process communication model certifying master trainer. He's also the author of four books, Beyond Drama, Conflict Without Casualties, Seeing People Through, and his newest book, Compassionate Accountability. He also hosts a podcast called On Compassion with Dr. Nate. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Nate Regeer. Welcome, Nate, and thank you for being part of the No Good People family. I am so glad to be here. Thank you so much. And shout out to Glenn Winfrey, who's also a colleague of you for introducing us. Uh, We appreciate um, his sharing his passion for compassionate accountability, but also knowing when good people need to share great things. So again, thank you. Absolutely. And, you know, that's how so many of us get connected is just from people who care about the message and want to make connections. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I always like to start with this question because I like to remind our listeners that there's something great and good in all of us, regardless of our beginnings. So, Nate, tell us where you were born and raised and what was your childhood like? Oh, wow. So I was not born where I was supposed to be born. I was supposed to be born in rural Congo, which is the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was called Zaire back in the 1960s when I was born. And my parents were there as missionaries and my mom was pregnant with me and my dad developed a back problem that needed emergency surgery and they didn't feel comfortable having it done there in that rural area. So the mission organization actually flew us home to the United States where my dad could get the surgery. And consequently, I was born here in my hometown of Newton, Kansas, where all my family is from. And, uh, Shortly thereafter, we went back. And so I grew up actually the son of missionary kids in rural um, Congo, Africa. Oh, wow. And how long were you there? I was there mostly, most of the time I was there until I was 10 years old. We came back to the States when I was 10 and then we returned. My parents returned to Botswana in the 1980s and I went to high school in Botswana. So a total of 11 years overseas before I started college. Okay. And did you go to college overseas as well? or No, I did high school overseas. And then I did college here in Kansas at Bethel College, where I got my undergrad degree in psychology. Okay. And then what more, can tell us a little more about your educational yeah. background? Yeah. So then after that, I got really interested in psychology in undergrad and ended up working for a couple of years at a um, residential facility for people with long-term chronic mental illness. And after two years, then I went to graduate school and got my doctorate in clinical psychology from the Mm -hmm. University of Kansas and ended up working for 11 years as a staff clinical psychologist for a large multi-specialty behavioral health center here in Kansas before I ended up kind of making the break and becoming an entrepreneur and starting Next Element in 2008. 
Okay. And when did you first discover your passion for helping others be great? And how did that begin next element? You know, the seeds were, I'm sure the seeds were planted by my parents who, who as missionaries, they really were non-traditional missionaries because my dad was a farmer from rural Kansas. My mom got her education as a nurse. And so when they went to Africa, their goal was really about appropriate technology, rural health, really helping, helping build sustainability and wellness. And so I can't, I, I saw those role models. I think those seeds were planted, mm-hmm. but it really started to sprout in college when I started taking psychology classes and realized, wow, what a great avenue to be able to leverage my personal gifts, my personality to mm-hmm. help other people. And uh, things really took off. I think I, I kind of found my calling there working with people in that kind of a setting. So do you think that, that would kind of, you know, as you talk about in your book, your compassion's journey, do you think that's where mm. that kind of began? Yeah, I think it did. And I, in that compassion journey, I talk about a whole different, a whole bunch of different things along the way that planted seeds. But I think all along my quest inside was what does compassion really look like in the real world? Not in mm-hmm. a laboratory, not in a, not on a mission field, but you know, and when I was a staff psychologist, I our organization had a cons- organizational consulting kind of kind of uh, professional consulting division, and in that division we ran an EAP employee assistance program, and mm-hmm. I ended up running that program. And so I interfaced with a lot of businesses around how do we support mental health issues at work in the most helpful way, and I became aware that man there are a ton of behavioral health problems and struggles in the workplace. And these are people that are never going to show up in a therapy office. They're never going to get mm-hmm. diagnosed with some mental illness. And so my, my question became, how do we help those people in a different way? And I realized that so many of the problems were caused by miscommunication and drama between leaders, between bosses and employees and in the workplace. And that if we could tackle that, we could maybe improve the conditions under which workers were working and improve the mental health conditions at a large scale. So that's what I kind of started thinking, really what I should be doing is working with leaders and their teams to change work cultures so that these Mm -hmm. people never end up having to show up in my door at all. I love that idea. And I think that a lot of people probably don't think of it as, um, as conflict and or drama, right? They just, they kind of make it as simple as black and white. Like, I don't like this job. Yeah. This isn't working. It's time for me to go, right? As opposed to, well, how can I fix something? Or how can I make something better? Or how do you totally. begin to have these conversations? Well, totally. And, you know, work in my lifetime, work has really changed from being something that you just do to get a paycheck and you suck it up. Absolutely. And you be grateful to work is now part of my full identity. It's there's balance issues. It contributes to meaning. I want to learn and grow. I want to have purpose. I mean, work means so much more than it used to. So, so that I started to see emerging, but then also the data, the research continues to support for probably 15 consecutive years that the largest driver of engagement is relationship with your boss. It drives mm-hmm. like 70% of engagement. So whether we know it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, most people don't leave their companies. They leave their bosses. And so if we want to improve the work experience, (laughs) we should be improving the relationship between the bosses and the employees. 
But how do you get there, Nate? Because I think sometimes people are placed in positions and once they're in these positions, they're seen as experts. But they may be an expert in that field, but they may not be an expert in leadership. They may not be an expert in relationships, right? They may not be an expert in um, managing teams. Oh, man, Vera, you're so right. And you're you're talking about what what was way back named the Peter Principle, that um, it's this it's this phenomenon that we we promote people to their level of incompetence, and not by on purpose, but we keep promoting people because they're good at their job. But we don't promote mm-hmm. them for the capabilities needed at the next level. We promote them for what they were currently doing, and that is where the gap exists. And so. We're seeing more and more companies now really trying to think carefully about talent development and that pipeline. And what does it really mean to prepare someone for what for leadership? And so that's, that's really a sweet spot for us because organizations get it, but the social emotional skills become more and more important the higher up you go in leadership. And so we really have to be teaching people those skills because it doesn't necessarily come with the job that they were doing before. Right, right. So, I, so let's get into your latest book. Sure. Um, I've read a few chapters of Compassion Accountability. So explain to our listeners, what does that term mean? Yeah. Um, Well, most people that look at that phrase, and we've been using it, we coined it probably eight or nine years ago, and we've been using it pretty consistently since then. And when people look at those two words together, there's two reactions most people have. The first one is kind of puzzled, like, what are you talking about? Those two words are not supposed to be together. They don't go together. But then after it soaks in, there's kind of this hopeful message like, whoa, what if they did? What if those two actually could come together? Wouldn't that be amazing? And so just, yeah, I think day before yesterday, I had an article published in Forbes magazine. Um, It was an interview with me by Roger Dean Duncan and he titled it, Compassion Accountability is Not an Oxymoron. And I think that's the whole point that we're trying to make in this book is that the, these two things are not um, in opposition. They're not intention. And when we treat them as if they are, that's where all the problems come from. But when we recognize that you can't have one without the other, and they're actually one and the same, then there's incredible breakthroughs that are possible. And the whole book is about what could be possible if we embrace that and how do you do it? And you think that it is um, it is a game changer in the work field um, and how it relates to not just leadership, but how maybe how it relates to DEI? Oh, it's an absolute game changer. And one of the reasons that you, know, you mentioned Glenn Winfrey as, as the person that connected us, Glenn and I have had some really good conversations about how compassionate accountability really gets at the crux of the issue with DEI. And um, where and, and helps us identify where things kind of stall out and where maybe we're, we're having good intentions, but we're really not getting to the practical behavioral aspects of what it means to truly include people in the workplace. So yes, there's some really good stuff there. And I talk about some of it in my book. Yeah, I'll, I'll just stop there. Okay. <laughs> you don't yeah, have to stop there. <laughs> I'm just not sure where where which part of that might be most interesting to you or your listeners. So I'll just let you guide me. I think all of it is interesting. And I'd like to explore that a little bit more. So we talk about it being, you know, a leadership standard of the future. What makes it a a standard of the future? Yes, yes. Thank you. So why is it a game changer? Why do I believe it's a game changer? 
Because, and I kind of outlined this in the first section of the book about the evolution of compassion, that how, how we relate to compassion, how we understand it in, at work has really changed over the years. And everything kind of came to a head during COVID where we saw this kind of pendulum of compassion where at first it was like, hey, we're all in this together. Everybody's freaking out. And there's nothing that brings people together like crisis, right? So mm-hmm. it was like, mm-hmm. oh, we're all in this together. That's like lots of compassion, right? And then within weeks or months, we're at each other's throats because you're not wearing a mask and you don't agree with me on who caused the virus and here's what we need a vaccine or we don't. And it was like, everybody's at each other's throats, which is like the least possible compassion you can have because the word compassion comes from the Latin root, meaning with suffer, struggle with. And instead we were all fighting against each other at a time when Mm -hmm. we really should have been working together. And so what we, so, so that was kind of going on. And then the whole return to work thing started really bringing up accountability unchecked. So like, Hey, you know, it's, it's time for you to stop messing around and working in your pajamas. It's time to come back to work or we need to institute accountability measures so to make sure you're actually working when you're at home. And it was like, wait, two months ago, it was like work from home is the greatest thing ever. So what's going on. And so what we saw is that compassion and accountability had like been put in their separate corners and we realize now is the time we have to bring this message to the public because we've been doing it with our clients with transformative results for a long time but we really need to put it in an easy to understand digestible form to show the world that wait we don't have to live in these two compartments and the solutions to our biggest problems anymore are going to require that we embrace compassion with accountability, full measure, no compromises. And that is the leadership competency of the future. Leaders that can do that are going to retain and attract the best talent. They're going to be able to succeed with DEI and belonging initiatives. They're going to be able to find Mm -hmm. good solutions and they're going to be able to collaborate across departments, across countries, across international borders to solve big problems. So you talk about your vision and dream for compassion accountability mm. is to find its, you know, it find its way into every interaction. Yeah. So you talk about politics, climate change, restorative mm-hmm. justice, and yeah. even families. Yeah. Do you think that that is, you know, because I hear you like a little side there. Do you feel like it's an opportunity for people to really embrace that? Do you feel like people can and desire to embrace this? Or do you feel that because we are coming out of the pandemic, People don't, you know, you, you find it might be a little bit more difficult to, um, I guess, motivate people to do this. Oh, uh, yeah. Good question. And my sigh was, was both that we have a lot of work to do and that there's hope. And I see pockets of hope. Yesterday, I was interviewing Rex Miller for my podcast, and he's doing some really cool stuff with trauma recovery in workplaces. And recognizing mm. that what we've been through over the last three years is really act, could be considered trauma and it's affected our brains and we need to heal. We need work. We need collective community therapy to get beyond this. And this kind of fight or flight instinct that is going on in our brains as a result of this trauma invites us to quickly see everything as black and white. It invites us to make these choices or, or believe that we only have two choices. And, and those are either you choose results or you choose relationships. 
And we're seeing this more and more that when push comes to shove, leaders will say, well, you know, you got to get results, even if you have to hurt the relationship. But yet others leaders will say, no, you have to preserve the relationship, even if results compromise. And to me, that's an example of this artificial dichotomy that's kind of a trauma response, but it's also part of our human nature. And so when I cast that vision, what I'm saying is, wait, we don't have to make those choices. There is a different choice. There's a third way. But I don't think people have the words. They don't know how to do this. And so like with Glenn, one of the conversations I was having around DEI is, you know, we've done the training, we have the anti-bias training, we've got the policies in place, we've done all these things, but we still don't have the words to talk to each other in those awkward, weird moments. And we don't know how to show compassion and deal with behavior at the same time. We're scared. And so we pick one over the other and then we run for cover. And so this is what the vision I'm trying to cast is there is a third way where we don't have to choose. Yeah, I love that. Um, one that you don't have to choose, but then also finding your words. And we talk about that with, you know, toddlers, right? You know, use yeah. your words. You know, um, what is it that you're trying to say? Or help me understand you a little bit better. Um, but I think, like you said, we're so focused on, we've got to get through the day. I got to get these results done. Um, so I was talking to a colleague yesterday, um, and they have an interim director for their division and, uh, and the person is a little old school, um, maybe for lack of a better term. And, uh, they sent an email to everyone, you know, saying, well, even though it's summer, you know, we don't, everybody still must wear a shirt and tie and no flip-flops and, um, dresses must be a respectable length. And it really was off-putting to many of the staff members. And, in, you know, and I know you don't know the entire situation, but is that right, an, op right. an opportunity for, for compassion yeah. accountability to work in yes. that situation? Okay. Yes, this is a really good example. Thanks for throwing it out there. Can I, can I maybe uh, free associate through the lens of compassion accountability on how you might handle Sure, this? absolutely. Please. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's bad intentions. I would not, I would assume good intentions by whoever made that rule. I'm sure they have their reasons. They're trying to accomplish something meaningful and noble. Here's the problem. There's three aspects of accountability that all have to be upheld if we're going to do this right. We have to uphold human value. We have to uphold human capability. And we have to uphold human responsibility. And I talk about those as the three switches of the compassion mindset. So what yes. would it look like if this organization or leader faced with a problem that they're apparently trying to solve with suit and tie, what if they dealt with it this way? What if instead they came clean with their people and said, hey, we're struggling with something that we don't really know how to solve, which is true. And we also understand that there's a lot going on in your life. So we want to preserve, we want to value your experience, your dignity in this process, but we're, and we're struggling with something as a company that's preserving value. That's how you talk about it in a way that says mm -hmm. I, as an organization and a leader, I'm valuable enough that I will share with you my struggles, the problems I'm trying to solve here. You're valuable enough that I'm going to care about your experience through this all. Then we go to capability and we say, okay, so that's one part of compassion, but also we're capable, which means everyone can be part of the solution. So we say then is, okay, so here's the problem we're trying to solve. Here's what we're dealing with. And we want your help 
because you're the ones that are going to be having to see it through. You're the going to ones be dealing with the consequences and you're the ones probably with the best ideas. So will you help us figure out how to solve this problem? That's the capability part is, okay. is um, this really reinforces, I think it was Ken Blanchard that said, those who plan the battle rarely battle the plan. Think about that. Hmm. Those who plan the battle rarely battle the plan. So the capability is really about saying, if everyone is capable of being part of the solution, why don't we engage them in co-creating? Because when someone has Got participated it. in creating something, they're going to fight for it and they're going to do it. Then we have to reinforce the third switch, which is responsibility, which means everyone is responsible for their behaviors. We all have accountabilities that we need to uphold. This is where leadership says to the people, here is what it comes down to. Here's what's at stake. Here are the principles we're trying to uphold as a company. So instead of saying everybody has to wear a shirt and tie to work, even though it's 115 degrees, what we say is, as a company, we're struggling with image, with PR. We're wanting to maintain professionalism. We're wanting to, you know, these are the things where at the end of the day, whatever solution we come up with, it needs to meet mm -hmm. these criteria. And so instead of just popping off solutions to people, you focus on the principles that are at stake and let the people help you get there. That's great. That's great. I'm going to make sure that they listen to this. Well, because then maybe we it won't feel as offensive. Right. And I'm, and I'm really talking about the staff for that, for that yeah. matter, because maybe it will help them, you know, think about it a little differently, but also communicate that with the interim director. Absolutely. And the thing about compassion is people get nervous and think, well, compassion means anything goes and you can just get away with anything and people are going to take advantage of me. The whole point of my book is compassion without accountability is not compassion. You don't, you, you don't show that you care about people's development or that you don't show that you care about your company if you don't also hold everyone accountable to the, the best. Right. But how does that work for someone who's stepping in as an interim leader? Because, well, you know, think, some people may feel as if they don't have as much yeah. invested. Here's the thing. Are you the interim leader that's the turnaround guy that doesn't care what kind of carnage you leave because you're going to be out in a, in a month? And as long as the financials turn around and, the, and the, the board is happy, you get to leave and go do it again somewhere else. If you're that kind of interim director, um, I don't have any energy to, to talk to you. But if you're the kind of interim director that wants to leave a lasting memory and wants to, no matter how short or long you're there, you want to make a difference in the culture then it, it behooves you, as my parents would say, to actually embrace compassion. And mm -hmm. the reality, and I show tons of examples, both, both anecdotes and research and um, stories of real leaders that have done this. When you approach with compassion accountability, kind of like I was explaining, you actually get better results and you get them faster and you have more buy-in. So what has been the response from leaders who have you know, gone through your programs and have implemented compassion and accountability. What has been the feedback to you? It's crazy. At first, it seems really hard and impossible. And when mm -hmm. we give them the words, when we give them the phrases, when we give them the template on how to have the conversations and they try it for the first time, there's almost this universal like delight, like, oh my gosh, I had no idea it could turn out this way or it's magical, or wait, um, 
I thought that that nurse that I was confronting about their behavior was going to quit on the spot. And instead they broke down, they thanked me, they asked me for help. And now mm-hmm. they're like an advocate. And so it's really, um, one of the best examples that this, this really illustrates a ton of, of, of experience for us is we were working with a, a national car rental company with a 200 and some call center managers that absolutely dreaded their performance conversations with all of their reps. And they called it picking scabs. That was how they described it. Oh. And we, we analyzed the nature of their conversations, how they were having these, how they were dealing with performance and where the problems were. We found the gaps and we showed them how to turn on all three of their switches and deal with value capability and responsibility in equal measure. And it was, they were like, this is magical. Now we look forward to our conversations with our reps. And our reps actually say that they feel like we're in this together instead of here's mm-hmm. another 20 minute adversarial conversation with my boss. So that's the kind of stuff we're experiencing. But I also think that would help that you're continuously having conversations, right? So versus only speaking or only addressing things when they're when it's a problem versus having ongoing conversations. So you're always giving feedback. And um, and I think one of the things that I appreciate in the book probably the most is seeing value in everyone Um, because people really like to feel valued. They'd like to feel I'm just as important as the next person. Absolutely. And I don't want to be more important or less important. I want to be as important. And Mm -hmm. in the the section on implementation in the culture, strategic implementation, I kind of start that section with showing the research on what, how employees viewed their leader back in the day and how they do now. And an example was before I had a boss, but now I want a coach or a mentor. Before Mm -hmm. it was about getting a paycheck, but now it's about how am I developing as a human? And so to, to achieve those kinds of needs in today's employees, we have to have daily conversations around the hard stuff too. Right. Absolutely. And so do you find that your coaching, um, implementing these leadership trainings helps them to have those daily conversations as well as those difficult conversations? It really does. And when people have a template and they have kind of the words, they can get started and, they get, and then they start to figure the method to the madness. And they, they realize that there is a formula here for doing this. And then they can start just having it regularly on every conversation, including email exchanges or text strings. Mm. Um, I'm surprised how often during a training, someone will say, oh my gosh, I just used what I was learning in a, in a text conversation with my <laughs> daughter. And it's the first time she's ever responded without an eye roll emoji. And so people are seeing, you know, immediate results in daily interactions. And that's the micro conversations that have to happen every day, because truly it's those conversations that accumulate to create your culture. But at the same time, executives that are responsible for more strategic kinds of initiatives, we also help them implement these these principles at at a policy, at a procedural level so that we're not working against ourselves around issues like talent recruitment or performance management or incentive systems or even how we do PR. Oh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. You know, the one thing we tried to do with this book is go from the micro to the macro. So some Mm -hmm. people say, just give me the words. Like, And some people say, I want to understand philosophically what you're talking about. And some people say, okay, great, but how do we actually implement this in our culture so it sustains? And there's something for everyone in the book. 
when it comes to culture, we've identified six key areas of an organization that should be evaluated through the lens of compassion and accountability. I don't know if I can list them all six, but it's examples, like I said, like talent recruitment. How do you, when you are recruiting and hiring people, are you interviewing them behaviorally to see if they have a compassion mindset? Um, when you're doing performance evaluations and reviews, is that process reinforcing human value, human capability, and human responsibility? Or is it undermining one or two of them inadvertently? Mm-hmm. Is your DEI initiatives affirming all three of these. And I'll tell you, most organizations who have kind of stalled out or hit a wall in DEI, it's because they're doing it without all three switches on. So- Yeah, I can see how that would happen. Yeah, and so then we we also provide a template for how do you start creating behavior norms in a culture that comply with this? So how do people co-create our standards of engagement for how we're going to be with each other so that we can consistently be affirming those three aspects of who we are. I love that idea. And I, I love how you kind of break that in, break that down. Um, so where can leaders and listeners connect with you? How can they learn more about this? Where can they purchase your, um, where can they purchase compassionate accountability? We try to make it as simple as possible. One URL which is compassionateaccountabilitybook.com. If you go there, you'll land on a page that shows you where to get the book. You can learn about the book. You can see a trailer for the book, but then you can also go deeper into some resources that we've assembled for you, or you can learn more about how we work with organizations. You can subscribe to my mm-hmm. blog or my podcast, but it's a great central landing place where you can go anywhere from there. Awesome. And any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners and our leaders? I want to make sure that I put that in there because I want our listeners to realize that you are a leader, regardless of your position. Well, I would say that this is this whole process is a journey. And we we don't get there, we don't arrive, we we're not perfect. And so for me, every day, I know which one of my switches tends to dim on a daily basis. Sometimes I don't see it and my team helps me, but it's really not about how often you fall down. It's about recognizing it, getting back up, turning those switches back on and, and, mm-hmm. and making it right going forward. And so this is a journey. And, and I think people who embrace that get the most joy and the most benefit. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and I really appreciate this conversation because I'm learning a lot reading the book, but in having this conversation with you, I feel like it kind of connects a lot of dots for me. Well, I thank you. Um, and I, your questions were particularly, um, I don't know, particularly relevant and, and invited me to really think. And I, it, it let me know a little bit about what's going on for you. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, family, that's it for another episode of the No Good People podcast. I thank you for joining me and my guest, Dr. Nate Regeer. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you hear something you like, be sure to share it. Until next time, I'm Vera Smith-Winfrey. And remember, it's always good to know good people. Thanks so much again, Dr. Nate. You are welcome. For more podcasts from No Good People, visit Spotify, Audible, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks for listening.